going live. What's going on, everybody? I'm here on quarantine, like most of those still in the United States, unless you live in Texas, I guess. Hallelujah for Texas. I pray that Illinois gets some Texas wisdom, but we're still here in quarantine, and we're ready to have church. And if you want to join with us, go ahead, stop what you're doing, stop your scrolling, and tune right in here. And those who are already on this feed, share if you care, because we want the world to know we are here. So share if you care, and let the world know we are here. Today I'm going to be going back into our series, into the epistle of 1 John. We were doing this as a sermon series before the COVID, and now I feel it's time to get back into it. Because in my mind, we have gone through the worst of it, and now it's time to get back to business as usual. I'm going to follow the president's lead, not to uh, undermine what's going on in other places. Those who are still facing it right now, our prayers are with you. But we believe as a nation we need to move forward. We can be trusted at parks, at least in Illinois. Come on. We can be trusted to go to city and state-run parks again. Come on, get with it. A lot of small businesses should be starting as well. They're smart enough how to go about business. Okay, so if you are in one of those places where you're already free, don't rub it in too much. We're on quarantine here, not even allowed to go to our parks yet. But we're going to keep having church this way until the Lord leads us. Otherwise, we are trying to respect and honor our governor here in Illinois, as well as respecting the Constitution that says they can't prohibit us from peaceful gathering, as well as the Word of God that says not to forsake gathering. If you are local in the Chicagoland area and want to be a part of the church as if the doors were open, let us know right now, and we'll make sure to give you our link to our pre-preaching Zoom feed where we do our worship, our time of word, announcements, and offering, as well as uh, just meeting needs of the local body. We're having our life groups do this all online and social media, but we believe Sunday should be so special that you can uh, be a part of it and feel like you're there, that we are doing that in a different venue than just as a lot of churches are, not, nothing against them, but they're sending out a live feed or you're watching a recording. No, we want you present. We want to see you there. We want to hear if you have a word from the Lord because we are a spirit-filled church. So if you're local and you want to join into that meeting to be considered a part of our body, you have to join discipleship. Put your name up now and say, hey, I want to I want to start discipleship. You know, you don't have a lot to lose right now, do you? You have all the time in the world. They'll start doing it with you online. Somebody right now, a leader, will get in touch with you. And if you're local in the area and you want to give to the church or you just feel led wherever you're at to give, a link will be given right now. And if you're in the area and you need help of any kind, let us know. We want to try to serve you and help you. Uh, we want to be a blessing to you in the community. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. It's awesome to be with you today. What an honor to be preaching the Word of God, whether it's through this venue or with you in person. I take this as a great honor and a privilege, and I want to make the best of our time. So I hope that you'll get something out of this. If you haven't followed along with our sermon series before, it is online as well as my notes. You can go into the First John sermon series and get all these notes and look back at previous messages. We are in First John chapter 4, verse 7. 
Today's message is God is love. What I would like to do is read this whole passage from 7 to 21 first, and then afterward break it down verse by verse. So let's get into it. By the way, I love holding this Bible here, but I have to scroll it here as well. So I, I, I got in the habit of holding the paper Bible again, so I have it here, but I need to scroll it. So let's go ahead and read it first in its entire context. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we, want, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Chat that right there. There's the heart of the message. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete or perfect among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Wow, come on, somebody say it's all about love. I mean, isn't that a beautiful passage that teaches us the power and the priority of love? Love was that which motivated Jesus to come to the cross. Love is what motivated the Father to set up the plan of salvation. Love is what motivates the Spirit to indwell us, to be with us, to empower us. Love is what empowers the church to do all that it does. And then in culture and society and our families, love ought to be the foundation for all that we do. Somebody say it's all about love. If you're sitting next to a family member or loved one right now, God is love. And that's why it's all about love. And now as we get into this message, I want to go verse by verse through this passage. And it's going to feel a little bit more like a Bible study. So those who might be used to my preaching during this time, especially as I got fired up during this season, you might have to uh, give me a little grace to take my time to teach, as I often like to do when I go through the books of the Bible. 
I love to preach topical sermons that impact us as a culture and as a church and get us to wake up to what God is doing. And at the same time, I like to go verse by verse to pastor and shepherd us so that we see the applicability of the word of God in all seasons. Well, as we get ready to look at this passage again, let's just remember who's writing this book. It's the Apostle John, the one who wrote more about love in his gospel than any other gospel writers. And it's probably because he was drawn to Jesus in such a unique way. The Bible says at the Last Supper, it was John who laid his head on Jesus's chest and had intimate conversations with him. Sadly, today, the LGBT community tries to make that out to be same sex. And that's because a uh, same sex attraction. That's because they don't know how to have same sex relationships without it being sexual. Men can be close. The Bible said that David and Jonathan were close, even closer than a man is with a woman. That must mean that they weren't as close with their wives for whatever reason, but they had a bromance between each other that they could express the deepness of their heart and it went beyond sexual things. And sadly today in our culture, people try to make that out to be a broke back mountain scenario. Kids, if you want to know what that is, you can ask your parents about that. But that's not true. It is okay for us to love people of the same sex and have deep love for them, even a love that's greater than sex, because sex isn't all that love is about. And the reason why I bring that up is because so often we think of love as sex. Even in our vernacular, in the English language, we say that a man and a woman made love. And sometimes we try to even differentiate between having sex and making love. Now, there might be a difference in how we use those terms. And absolutely, you should love who you have sex with. In marriage, of course, with the opposite sex. In monogamy, all of those clarifications hopefully help you. But the idea of love being called sex isn't anywhere in the Bible and how we would understand love. Love is totally separate from things that are sexual. It can have an expression. Love can have an expression that comes out through sex, but it's not even the greatest expression of love. The greatest expression of love, as we heard in this context, is self-sacrifice. That's the greatest expression of love. And of course, intimacy in relationship. If something were to happen, God forbid, that my wife and I couldn't have sex anymore, I would still want to be intimate with her and share my heart with her and be in a deep uh, relationship with her that goes beyond anything we ever had in the bedroom. As a matter of fact, we see this kind of love still today among brothers and sisters in the church. We don't have sex with everybody in the church. Of course not. This is not a cult. But we have deep love for each other. Some of us in the church have a closer relationship with the people here than we do our own siblings. And I know that I can say that. I haven't seen my brother in years. And yet I long for my brothers right now in the church. I want to be with them badly. I miss them. I love sharing time with them. 
And yet at the same time, it's not sexual. As a matter of fact, the Bible told Timothy, Timothy, love these young ladies and women in the church as you would your mothers and your sisters. And of course, there's nothing sexual with your sister or your mother, but there's such a great love. So what we have to do as we get into this discussion about love is detach it from the world's definition of love and all of the sexuality that comes with it. Now, I do believe we could have a great conversation in a different sermon series about love and sex because sex is beautiful in loving marriages. But I have to say that that's not what I'm talking about today because sadly in our culture, wouldn't you agree that we equate love with sex? And that's not in the conversation here. What is in the conversation is self-sacrificing love. So as we go back to the verses, uh, the verses starting in verse 7, let's look at love and have that definition of self-sacrifice. Now, I know some of you might want to jump ahead and try to go to the Greek uh, definition of love, agape, unconditional love. And, and that can be helpful, but that's not where I want to be today either. It's just in the sense of what we think the Greek word means because uh, they do have different definitions, uh, different words for love, like agape, meaning more like deep love. They have filial love, which means like brotherly love, like the city of Philadelphia, eros love, which can kind of mean erotic love. But we sometimes take that Greek word to go beyond what it really means. It doesn't just mean unconditional love. It can but it in itself can just mean love, just not unconditional, just normal love. And so sometimes people want to say agape equals the God kind of love, and that's what it always means. Well, if you ever hang around Greek speakers, you'll realize real quick that they use the word agape as we use the word love, and they certainly don't mean it unconditional. So let's not get lost into that. Once again, John didn't give us a Greek lesson on all the Greek words here of love, and sometimes I think people try to get a little bit ahead of the point, and they miss the bigger point. Let's just get the main point here. Jesus is the definition of love because he is self-sacrificing. That's what we're supposed to get because then we are to be self-sacrificing towards others. And is there a sense of unconditional love in that? Absolutely. But I think we don't understand judgment because there is going to be a judgment where people that God has once loved, he now turns towards hatred and he sends them to hell. Might be a side topic for a different time, but God is not sending, the peop sending people to hell that he loves now. He does not love them anymore. So all who are in hell are there because of the hatred of God. He's not crying a tear every night looking over the balconies of heaven at people in hell. He's actually rejoicing that they're there. He has put his boot on their head. He has stomped them as grapes. And he's even laughed and mocked them on the day of their judgment because they thought they could go uh, a different way than his way. So he's laughing at them. Psalm 2, if you don't believe me. And Revelation as well. Let's go back to this. Let's talk about God is love and that God is self-sacrificing love and we should self-sacrifice for each other. Let's stick with that definition and I'll show it to you here. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. So ultimately, where does all love in the world come from? Where is the source of that? Is it from the goo through the zoo to you? No, it's from God. 
Animals may show some kind of a sympathy towards each other. They may have some type of a act of kindness that they display, mother uh, animals to their children, animals, etc. But they don't have what the Bible calls love. Love is a part of the image of God. It is a part of what makes us spiritual creatures, and it comes from God. And this is good to understand this. If somebody is calling something love that does not line up with what God calls love, then it is false love. Just like there can be a counterfeit dollar bill, there can be counterfeit love. So if I today cheat on my wife, fall in love with my girlfriend on the side, that is not real love. That is counterfeit love because real love would not bring a woman into our marriage, have an, uh, me have an adulterous affair with them, cause hurt to my wife and all of these things that would come upon my family. So that wouldn't be true love. That's a counterfeit love. Just as we were talking about before with the, the LGBT uh, community, that's a counterfeit love. They say they're in love and all of that, and I'm sure they feel it. I'm not saying that uh, they are lying to us. I'm just saying they're deceived, just like a Muslim says that they love these false uh, things about their religion. All things that are not lined up with God's word, whether from another religion, another kind of sexuality, or just any kind of actions we take in our life, if that thing we're calling love is not lined up with the God of love, it is not true love, because true love reflects the image of God. God is love. We've read that. So true love reflects his image. Continue on. Everyone who loves has been born of God. So this is a key concept in the book of John, not only here in his epistle, but also in the gospel. He talks about being born again. John chapter 3 is key to understanding this talk today. So if you're not familiar with it, go back and read it on your own so that you can hear the discussion Jesus had with Nicodemus, a religious leader, teaching him that we inherit the kingdom of God, not because of what we do, but because of what he does in us. And that is called being born again, the spirit of God renewing our spirit to be made in the perfect image of God. Though we still dwell in this imperfect flesh, our spirits are made perfect and righteous when we're born again. And we're going to hear about that in just a moment. If you remember, it says we are like Jesus. Does that mean I'm like Jesus in my hair color or skin color or the freckles that I have? No, it's not a carnal comparison to Jesus. I am like Jesus here in my spiritual nature because I've been born of God. Come on, somebody. If you've been born of God, can you chat and amen? So everyone who loves has been born of God. This is an indication, rather, this is an indication that you've been born of God, that you're loving God's way, not just any kind of love. Because once again, a Muslim can say, well, then I'm born of God because I love. I love my neighbor. I love my Islamic religion. I love the Quran. He'll kiss it, etc. Well, according to John, is that what he means? No. What he's saying is everyone who loves, and you can put in parentheses, like how God has commanded and loves like how God is in his character, has been born of God. Now you might say, oh, pastor, you're just getting too uh, opinionated here. Uh, John would never say anything like that. He's going to be nice. We believe in niceanity, right? No, sorry, my friends. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 
We, we remember that books are written in context. So before chapter four is chapter one, right? So we don't just skip ahead to chapter four and say, well, if anybody loves, then that just means they are a, a person born of God just because they love. No, they have to love the way the Bible teaches to love. And so we see here that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's a sin to, to follow a false prophet. It's a sin to believe in other gods. And then he continues on that the commands of God are attached to the love of God and obedience to those commands. Look at now 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete or perfect. That's the word teleos in the Greek, in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And the verse before says, if you say you know him, talking about Jesus, but you don't keep his commands, you are a liar. So does everybody get that? That the love of God has to be filtered through the character and commands of God. So if you're saying that you love God, and you are a loving person, but you're not keeping God's commands and his character, you're really not born of God, and you don't have the biblical or right kind of love. Now, John is talking to Christians, Christ followers, who for the most part we see from his letter, he doesn't have many rebukes like Paul does in his letters, so this might be a good church doing these things. We are to be like these folks, loving God by keeping his commands and being like him in character. You'll see that spelled out even more. Now he says, whoever does not love does not know God. And so we could put in there again, whoever does not love God in the way he commands or the way he teaches is not really in relationship with God. That knowing there is a relational word. They, not, they, they can know about God because the Bible says even demons know about God. But the knowing there is a relational term. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses the word know in, word, in, in times of intimacy, like when Adam knew Eve and had a baby afterwards. So that's the way they play on the words. We say making love equals sex. That's not how they equated love and sex. They actually uh, used the word know to be another word for sex. Now, obviously, this is not a sexual connotation here, but we can get the word know to stretch towards intimacy because the Bible says even the demons know about God, but obviously they don't know God. God. You can know my wife, but you don't know my wife like how I do, okay? So once again, not sexual, but intimacy, intimacy. Everybody put there on the chat, intimacy. Now, as we go further, it says, this is how God showed his love for us. So why is it I don't need to go into the Greek, agape, filio, eros, show you all these different kinds of love and try to make a definition out of agape to mean God's unconditional love, like it's a special word, because the definition of love doesn't come from its Greek definition, from a Greek dictionary. The word for love in the Bible is defined by the authors of the Bible. Here's how they define love. Look at it. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
And that's why I have John 3.16 there. By the way, the reference before in Revelation 4.8 talks about God's holiness. God is holy and God is love. Don't have time to discuss the holiness, but we have to see that there is a perfect balance of both in the character of God. And maybe this would be good to say that now. Because we define love by the nature of God, we have to include in God's nature his holiness, which is what the angels fly around his throne and say. And holy simply means God is separate and God is perfect. So from his separateness from fallen humanity and from his perfection and moral character, he loves. So holiness grounds the foundation of love. Love could be anything unless it's grounded. A child molester could say they're loving without grounding their definition and a definition of, of God's love. And that's why before what I was saying is that if we don't ground love in God's character of holiness, love could just be a word that anybody abuses. That Hitler loved the Jews so much he put them out of their misery, right? So love has to be defined by a foundation. And God is that foundation and God is holy. Now when he describes how love is shown, it is shown through Jesus. Jesus specifically on the cross. And that's why we have that famous passage, John 3, 16. Now look at the application. It's not just, wow, Jesus was so loving. Isn't that cool? Well, guess what? This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Okay, that's great, atoning sacrifice. We'll get into the theology of that in just a moment. But now it says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Isn't that powerful that we don't just stop at the example of Jesus and cheer him on as fans in the stand and go, that's awesome, Jesus died for us. No, we say, thank God Jesus died for us, now help me lay down my life for others. Does everybody get that? I wanna show you that in the context so that you don't miss it. That's where I get the definition of love from. I get the definition of love, not from a Greek dictionary, but from the scriptures itself, that God is love, why? Because he so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's how the father is love. How is God the son love? He is so loving that he laid down his life for us. How is the Holy Spirit loving? He loves us so much that he indwells us, makes us new and comes to dwell in us. And you're going to see the Trinity expressing love in just a few moments. If you haven't already, the Trinity, the triune God we worship, he's here in this passage. Praise God. And so the Bible says, because of this, we ought to love one another in the same way. Now, a great discussion, which I don't have time to get into, would be on the term there, atoning sacrifice. And this is what separates us from other religions and why our definition of love is self-sacrificial love because sacrifice has been a key component of our religion, if you want to call it that, since day one. When Adam and Eve sinned, most scholars like myself, though I may not be a scholar yet, I have to get the PhD and all of that, the doctorate, but scholars think that when the animal skin was given to Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness, that was the first shedding of blood in sacrifice. And then we know as Cain and Abel go on that uh, Abel gives blood sacrifice. And then we see blood sacrifice going throughout all the time of the patriarchs. And then to the time of Moses, 
when God gives them these 613 laws, so many of these laws revolve around the temple. They revolve around what happens in the temple, specifically the sacrifices and the things that uh, wash away their sins. And the great day that they would celebrate the cleansing of their sin with the sacrifice was called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And if you've ever read the book of Leviticus and felt confused, you're not alone. Leviticus can be quite confusing to our modern day context. All of the things the Levitical priesthood had to do revolving around these sacrifices. We'll never fear God's people because Hebrews is here. If you're struggling with the book of Leviticus or just want to see more clarity, start with Hebrews and then go back to Leviticus because the author of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, he does all the hard work for you to show you the connection between the Levitical law, primarily focused on blood sacrifice. He does all the hard work to show you how it ties into Jesus and how Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice who perfects us once and for all. If I had your time right now for the next three hours, I couldn't even scratch the surface of Hebrews and Leviticus and the, the atonement that is taught there, the doctrines that are there. So I would say, if this is something that interests you and you have the time, maybe just on the audio Bible, listen to the book of Hebrews, listen to the book of Leviticus, and then pull out your Bible and see if you can start making those connections as notes. Because it's a beautiful thing to see how our religion, and I just call it that because that's a way of understanding the whole thing that we believe, the whole kit and caboodle, that our religion is not just fly by night, that it was there from the beginning in types and shadows. And when Christ comes, he brings the fulfillment of all the mystery of the Old Testament. Boy, how I love talking with Jewish people. We met a young Jewish boy at the high school Taft when we were ministering there because we can instantly go back to all these mysteries, unsolved mysteries that they have and point them to Christ. And so much of that revolves around atonement, sacrifice, blood, priesthood, temple, uh, even the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. Jesus explains it all to us in his life and through his death, burial, and resurrection, especially in the epistles as he speaks to the apostles to make it clear to us. So John is throwing in that great theology that we might be encouraged to know that Jesus' self-sacrifice was an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that we are now not just to look at it and go, well, that's cool. No, we're now to love each other this way. And notice his good theology here. No one has ever seen God, okay? But if we love God, God lives in us and he makes his love perfect or complete in us. And then notice this as I come out with my new book, In Him. It says, this is how we know that we live in Him. Talking about in Christ. Because He's in us and He's given us His Spirit. So you want to see the Trinity here? This is how we know we're in Him. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Because He has given us the Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father is the one who sent the Son to be the Savior so the Spirit could dwell in us. That's why when we acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, we are saved. Before I go into these last verses, can I just give you the summary here real quick? God is love. 
And what that means is God is self-sacrificial love. God demonstrates this to us by sending Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And now we are to adopt this same definition of love and go out there and live it. Because if all we're doing is saying we know God, but we're not loving the way God loves, then we are truly hypocrites. We are liars. We are to love the way God loves. And as I've shown you in previous verses, that means we love like the way he loves in character and his commands. Somebody chat that. We love by keeping God's command and living as his character or living with his character. We love God by keeping his commands and living life with his character. That's going to be self-sacrificial. When you have the character of God, you're going to lay down your life for others. You're going to want the best for them. You're going to help them and you're going to care for them and you're going to show that you're different. You don't use people that you want the best for them and that you're a servant. All of those things follow from that. And that's why he says right here, God is love. And that whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Isn't that so beautiful that God lives in us? God is not far away. God is close. And then, you know, so you got two religions. Let me just share this with you real quick that totally misunderstand the presence of God. And my family and I, we're going through Star Wars right now. So you kind of have... God is everything like the force idea, and that's like Eastern religion. Hinduism is very similar to this. I was in India, and a guy picked up a I, I asked him who God was, and he picked up a spoon, and he said, this is my God. And I said, why do you believe that? He said, because I believe God is in everything. So you have on that one side that God is in everything like the force. But what do you lose with that from the God of the Bible? What makes that false? is that this God of energy has no mind, has no will, has no emotions, offers no relationship, is not love. Really, all false religions break down to not having a God of love. And I don't care if they say it in their words. By definition, a force, electricity, can't love. And when you ask them, does the force, does the all-powerful force of the universe have a mind to love and a personality? They'll say, no, there's no mind behind the force. It's a yin and a yang, you know, this kind of a thing. Well, you can't have a God of love. Well, then on the other hand, you have Islam, which to me embodies pagan religion. It's more pagan than it is any else. They try to claim Jewish roots and Christian roots, but they came in the 7th century and did a bad job of copying Christian Judeo thought and really did a good job of copying pagan Arabia thought. And that's why they march around a black stone in Mecca. That's why they throw rocks at the evil spirits and so forth. A lot of their traditions, the, the way they pray, even the name of their God and how they do things all comes from paganism. So if you're ever reading the Bible and you're thinking like, Daniel, Meshach, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what was it like to live at that time with this kind of paganism? Just think of modern-day Islam and what it would be like to live in an Islamic-run country. That's what it would be like for, for those boys back then because it's truly pagan at its core. But anyways, their God is not a father. It's very clear in the Quran. Their God is not a father, and their God is not present with us. He's separated by certain levels of heaven, and even Muhammad didn't meet with God. He had to meet with an angel, and even though, once again, they'll say God is love, and they'll use all of the words, if you don't have a God that's actually in you, with you, communicating to your spirit, making your spirit new so that he can dwell with you as a temple, you don't have a God of love. So here on one side, you have somebody saying, 
well, God is everything. Well, you can't have an everything God be love. And then over here, God is separate. God is so holy. He can't even come and be with us in that way. He can only send messengers. Well, you don't have a God of love. I believe that's why Christians are so motivated to go to the world and do acts of charity. We have outdone all religions combined in acts of charity because we believe in a God of love. And yet, more than most religions, we believe in a place of torment for those who don't believe our religion. Is that a contradiction? Absolutely not. Because we see that our Jesus, even as being crucified by the ones he loved, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He healed the sick. He helped the poor. He did all of those things and he let them make the choice of heaven and hell. Didn't change that there was a heaven or hell. He just showed them love, showed them the way and gave them the choice. God is so loving, he gives you a choice to not be with him forever. And that is a part of our message. So that doesn't mean that now we go around the world uh, just because we believe in a God of love doesn't mean we do away with the doctrines of hell and judgment and all of that. No, it actually helps us understand those judgments and hell better. Hell is a place for those who do not want to freely love God. Outside of God, you can't have a place to dwell in sanity and pleasure and joy. The place where God is not, which those people people wanted is a place of torment. In closing, let us take what we've now learned and put it towards what we're supposed to do now practically. Here it is. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so we can have confidence on judgment day. A clear sign that you're not right with God is that you're not ready to face judgment. All Christians should have a, a confidence to meet Jesus on Judgment Day. And why is that? Because in this world, we are like Jesus. Oh, come on, receive that. If the God of love has birthed you a new spirit so that you can be in relationship with him via the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's given you the power to love others as he has loved you, then, what, then how are you not like Jesus? If that's not like Jesus, I don't know what like Jesus is. Jesus was perfect in his spiritual nature. God makes us perfect in our spiritual nature. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit to do all the good works of God. That's why the Spirit came on him in the form of a dove. We have the Holy Spirit upon us. Jesus followed the Father's commands and did all that pleased him. We are to do that very same thing. That's why we can say there is no fear in perfect love, but perfect love uh, drives out all fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. I'm not afraid that God's going to punish me because I'm like Jesus. He's not punishing Jesus. He's not going to punish me. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, right here, sometimes people get confused and say, well, I thought the book of Proverbs and in other places, it says, fear God, fear God, fear God. Why are we now told not to fear God? Because it's two kinds of fear that are being talked about. The fear of God in Proverbs is to fear what God would do if you were outside of God's commands, outside of doing what pleases him. And so the example that I always give about the fear of the Lord is to think about your dad as a general in the army. At home, you respect your dad. You honor your dad. Sometimes your dad disciplines you. 
But you know that he wields so much more power. But in the home, he's gentle and kind with you, and yet you still respect and honor him, and you want to do what pleases him. But now imagine if you became rebellious, and you joined the enemy that your dad as a general was fighting. Let's say he was fighting ISIS over there in Syria. And out of your rebellion, you became a ISIS soldier. Now your dad as a general is a terror to you as he rains down hellfire missiles on your cave you're hiding in. Are you listening? But it's your choice to whether or not you see your father who has all of that power. Power never changes to whether or not you see him as your enemy, the one you're now going to be terrified of suffering his wrath, or as a father who loves you and cares for you. That's the fear of God of Proverbs. What is the fear that John is rebuking? It's not that kind of fear, because even as Christians, we're to remember, my God is a great loving father, but he's also a powerful judge who I don't want to go on the side of his traitor, the traitor against him, his adversary, and go on his side, because my God is powerful, and he's going to judge that traitor and all who follow him. So, you know, no, John is not saying it's good to not have that fear. The fear that John is talking about is the fear that you would have as a Christian to be punished. And we call that condemnation. And the Bible says, says elsewhere through Paul that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Using the same book, uh, go to the book of uh, John, 1 John chapter 2 at the beginning part as we were learning about before keeping his commands and obeying him, now we can see that we know, starting in verse 1, that we're dear children, right? And he says, I write this to you that you will not sin. So the goal is we don't sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is our atoning sacrifice. Remember that word or that phrase, atoning sacrifice? We've heard that now in four again. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So if we do sin as Christians, if we step out of obedience and live not perfect, because perfect should be our goal, my goal in life and my normal default position should be not to lie. Lying should be the minority of the time. Lying should be the thing that happens not consistently. Does everybody get that? Come on, somebody say, I'm holy by default. Somebody say, I'm like Jesus by default. So if we step out of that, what does a sin literally mean? Missing the mark. When we literally step outside of that, we're not to get afraid all of a sudden and go, oh no, I'm going to hell. He's going to come down and punish me. No, we are to understand the atoning sacrifice. We are to understand the love of God and not receive condemnation, but receive comfort in forgiveness as we truly confess our sins and say, Jesus, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not hiding it. I'm not making an excuse for it. I'm going to confess my sin. 
The Bible says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. So don't do that if you're in sin. Don't claim you haven't sinned. Don't try to change the rules. Don't lower the basketball hoop to be nerf size so you can dunk now. No, make it your goal to live like Christ because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. And if you should sin, as it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, confess your sins because then God is faithful and just and will forgive you. And notice this, will purify you from all unrighteousness. So what is the default position of the Christian? Like Jesus, full of righteousness. That should be your life and should be mine. And here we go to the final verses. Now, do we get in this process of love, which I call the cycle of love? God loves me, and now I love you, and I love others, and then you love me, and then we all love God, like this cycle of love. Did this start because we invented this idea? No, we were sinners and loved the world. We got in the cycle of God's love because God did to us, like sometimes what you might do to your friends at the, uh, at the wedding, God threw out his fish hook to us, caught us, and brought us in. Come on, somebody. Somebody say, God's love brought me in. Chat that. God's love brought me in. We don't love because we started this whole thing off and we're naturally inclined to love and this is a part of our natural human nature. No, we love because he first loved us. Now, if God was so good to us, to start the cycle of love in us, then it goes on to say that he'll complete it when we love others. So those of you who say, man, I can't love like God. I can't love my enemy. I can't love my neighbor. I can't forgive these people. I don't have enough love. God goes, I got you, fam. Say no more. Look to Jesus in the cross. There's enough love there for everyone. And that's why he brings up that theology. And he says, if you can't love somebody you see, how can you say you love God who you don't see? You're to show that you love the God you don't see by loving all those around you who you do see. And remember, we define love in the context of loving like how God is in character and in his commands. And that's why we keep the second greatest command, the first greatest command, the first of the two greatest commands is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we can love the way God loves is because he first loved us. He's given us all the tools, all the things we need to love him. He's given us literally of himself to be in us. The spirit is here to empower us to love. God is love. That's a fact. But are you love like Jesus? Could it be said Joe is love? Joe is love. Look at Joe's life. Joe exemplifies love. Look at Peter's life. Look at Jared's life. Look at this person's life. They em emphasize and exemplify love. That should be said of us because the Bible says, be holy for he is holy. And in other words, as we read here today, it's basically saying, be love because God is love. Amen. So let us all look at our lives in closing and to see if we are truly in love like how our God is love? Are we loving him the way we should? Are we loving others the way that the Bible commands? And if we are not, are we willing to repent? Not having fear, not having the fear of the world of condemnation, like worldly condemnation, guilt, but a conviction, if we're not right, to say, God, I know you love me and you don't want me to perish, but at the same time, God, I know you're not happy with some of my actions. You're not happy with how I'm living. That's how we're supposed to read this passage and take it into our lives. I hope that it's blessed you. If you're following with us right now and you want 
someone to pray with you to accept Christ so that you can be in the God of love and be love with him as he is love, write down your name. Say, that's me. Someone of the same gender will reach out to you. If you're struggling with loving people, maybe you've been hurt and legitimately people have done you wrong, but you're having a hard time forgiving them and loving your enemy, that person, the way Christ has loved his enemies, let someone know. Say, pray for me. I'm going through a hard time in this divorce or with this uh, job I'm at or in this relationship. We're here to pray for you. If you want to privately, just put under the chat, someone please reach out to me. And like I said, someone from the same gender will do that and we'll be looking at those chats right now. And I'll come back to the Zoom room and say some final words, but let's close out in prayer to the God of love, who is not like the gods of any of these nations or the idols of those, those religions, but he is so different. He is so different that he sent his son to show his love so that we can live in love. Let's pray to that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you today for being the God of love. We thank you for sending your son in love to die for us. Jesus, thank you, Son of God, for coming in the flesh and showing us your love by dying for us, being the atoning sacrifice for our sins, teaching us through the Gospel of John that there is no greater love than one that one can have than laying down their life for their friends. And you called us your friend. Thank you, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, thank you for loving us so much that you fill us with the presence of God, leading us and guiding us, empowering us to love like how you love, even loving our enemies while still maintaining the character of God and the, and the commands of God. Great Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you today. We ask that you would lead us and guide us in the ways of love. And for those who are listening to me who are not yet born again, born of you, God, may they do so today as they come to acknowledge Jesus for being your Son. Father, change our lives. Empower us during this time. It's in your son's name we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Share this video so that others can learn about love. If you want to join us in our Zoom and you're local, want to be in discipleship, let us know. If you need prayer, let us know. Otherwise, have a great week. God 